The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have supremacy over. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is a gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thank you, Danny. Good morning, church. Well, in 17th century China, the Jesuit missionary Julio Eleni was in conversation with a gentleman named She Zhongsheng. She Zhongsheng was talking to Julio Eleni about how hard it is to feel sorry, to feel remorseful for minor sins or small wrongs. Now, Julio Eleni understood a bit about Chinese culture and the Chinese view of hierarchy. So he responded that a person could speak rudely or disrespectfully to a superior and not feel sorry. But for a person to say something rude or disrespectful to a superior, to one who's more important than you, would leave you feeling ashamed and embarrassed. You'd be on your knees begging forgiveness. You'd be feeling terrible and very apologetic. Julio Eleni's point was that how much more terrible is it to belittle the Lord through sinning, the Lord who is so much more worthy of respect than any human senior or superior, yet through sin we show disrespect, no matter how big or how small. Now, this argument worked well for 17th century China, but it's not quite as effective for our context in 21st century Sydney. See, I think we've forgotten our creatureliness. We've forgotten our place in the order of creation. Last week, Pastor Benny mentioned that if he were to summarise the book of Colossians into one sentence, it would be the supremacy of Christ. And I think we see this idea in these passages. Christ is supreme. Christ is most high. Christ is first. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you that we can come here today to gather and look at your word and community as your church. Lord, I pray that you'd be speaking through me and anything that's not of you, you would wash away. Prepare our hearts for your words, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Occasionally, I'll watch interior design videos on YouTube of celebrities giving a tour of their home, just because I like to feel a bit bad about my home. And sometimes I find that there's just too much going on. Like, they were onto something with the wallpaper and, yeah, the little chandelier. But then they had to add the ultra Fregola mirror, that monstrosity that is about to appear on the screen. I know. Adding, subtracted. Or if you've been cooking and decided that watching MasterChef has really given you a greater kind of culinary education, so with the new recipe you're trying out, you think, hey, live a little. I'll just throw in an unmeasured amount of paprika and turmeric. <laughs> Then you taste it. Adding can subtract. The same is true of the gospel. Adding to Jesus will subtract from Jesus. So don't add. Don't add to Jesus. Don't try to fit something else into the mix. Don't try and put Jesus with the love of money. Don't try and mix Jesus with feng shui or horoscopes. Don't equate Jesus with lust for power. Don't add to Jesus. As we're about to see in verses 15 to 20, Jesus is more than enough. Verses 15 to 20 are often described as a hymn. They're fairly poetic in nature, but they're also jammed full of important teachings about Jesus. If you've ever had to write an essay and you've gone to get your resources, and it's usually an academic paper, and you go to the abstract to try and decipher what on earth the thing is about. The abstract gives you an idea, a summary of what the paper contains. These verses are a bit like an abstract for Jesus. They're condensed, but some of the most important characteristics of Jesus are contained in these verses. Verse 15 The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul describes Jesus as firstborn over all creation. This doesn't mean that Christ is the first creature. But rather that he existed before all creatures. It's a distinction of rank. Christ is first, Christ is the most important. It's not that Christ is a creation, he sits on the creator side of the creator creation relationship, but he's first born in the sense that he is to be revered, to be honored above all else and all others. In some cultures, the firstborn child has distinct privileges or responsibilities. And it's likely that Paul's audience understood that for Christ to be firstborn over all creation means that he is worthy of a distinct reverence, a distinct place in the order of all things. Through Jesus and for Jesus, the stars were put in the sky. Through Jesus and for Jesus, the oceans were filled. Through Jesus and for Jesus, angels are created. You and I exist through Jesus and for Jesus. 
I once heard someone who'd met the late Queen Elizabeth make the comment that whenever she was in conversation with someone, she was always looking at the person that she was talking to. She wasn't doing the sneaky, like, little look around the room to see who else was there that she could talk to. She was never doing the subtle glance to see who else she could kind of network with and then add on LinkedIn. And this is because she was it. She was the most important person in any room that she entered. There was no one else that she needed to impress. There was no one else that she needed to liaise with. She was it. These verses are showing us that Jesus isn't looking around the room to see who's more important. He is it. He is supreme. He is the Alpha and the Omega. In verse 16, Paul says that it was through Jesus and for him that everything on heaven and earth, the things we can see and the things that we can't, all powers, heavenly, earthly or otherwise, were created. Sorry, I was meant to say earthly or otherwise were created. Not sure if heavenly, earthly or, earthly or otherwise would be quite great theology. Imagine if the powers or people and institutions in charge of the world actually knew their place in the order of creation as creatures made for and through Jesus. Imagine if the people around us knew their place before Jesus. How would they behave? What sort of language would they use? What would their conversations be like? How would they treat the vulnerable in society? Imagine if we, truly, at the core of our beings, actually understood our own humble creatureliness and truly grasped Jesus' importance. How would our lives be different? If you truly knew, if you truly understood that you were created through Jesus and for him, if you truly understood that your life is only for Jesus, what would change? Would it be big changes? Would you switch jobs because the company you work for has ethical issues? Would it be small changes, like you'd stop buying from fast fashion brands because of the exploitation and environmental issues? Would you treat the people around you differently because you'd see them also as creatures made through Jesus and for him? Would you pray differently, knowing that you're loved and precious and important to the, people, to the being who created all things? Christ is firstborn over all creation. You and I are not. We're here as part of his story. We are valuable and precious because we are created through him and for him. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Here we see, the idea, here we see Paul moving from the idea of creation to new creation. 
the creation that has been redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice, which is why he starts with the church. In the new creation, which is creation that's been been redeemed and is being redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection, the church is the new humanity. We're to be agents of redemptive change. We're God's people. Paul makes the point that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Why the church? Because the church is the new humanity. We're the people of God redeemed by Jesus. How often do we lose sight of this? That the head of the church isn't the person who's been here the longest. It isn't the person who's read the most books. It's not the person who preaches the most. The head of the church is Jesus. The rest of us are just privileged to be part of his body with Jesus at the head. The incarnation, that is to say when Jesus became human, means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and thought it well worth his while. That was Dorothy Sayers. I think what Colossians also points out is that Christ has not only gone through the whole human experience, but he's also gone through recreation. He is first born from among the dead. Jesus delivers on his promise. He's the first to demonstrate that it's true. Jesus practices what he preached. He proves the promise. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is supreme over death. Jesus is the firstborn from death so that all who believe in him can rest in the promise that we will have eternal life. Our hope is secure. Jesus proves God's own promise. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. One of the realities that's tricky to understand is that of consequences. Our actions have consequences. We watch TV shows with gratuitous amounts of sex and violence. There's a consequence. 
We're constantly way too busy to spend quality time with our families. There's a consequence. We never own up to our mistakes or apologize. There's a consequence. Well, in Eden, we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and there was a consequence. We were alienated from God. We'd rebelled. The consequence was that there needed to be justice. There needed to be retribution. But there was also mercy that came through the death of Jesus rather than you and I. And that consequence is a happy one for all who believe in Jesus, for all who follow Jesus. We've become holy in God's sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Our challenge is to continue in our faith, to be secure, firm and unwavering in our faith and in the hope we hold in the gospel. In script writing, there was a golden rule. Show, don't tell. Don't have it written that Elsa is afraid of her frozen powers. Show it. Don't tell us that Frodo was overtaken by a desire to keep the ring. Show it. C.S. Lewis had a similar approach to writing. Don't use adjectives which merely tell us how you want us to feel about the thing you are describing. I mean, instead of telling us a thing was terrible, describe it so we'll be terrified. Don't say it was delightful. Make us say delightful when we've read the description. You see, all those words, horrifying, wonderful, hideous, exquisite, are only like saying to your readers, please, will you do my job for me? I think this is a fair way for us to approach our lives as well. Show, don't tell. In that, I'm not saying that we shouldn't share our faith or talk about Jesus, but our faith needs to be constantly evident in our acts, in how we live. People shouldn't be able to tell we follow Jesus just because it's something that we say. People should be able to tell that we follow Jesus because how we live reminds them of Jesus. To misquote C.S. Lewis, don't just say, I follow Jesus. Make us think of Jesus through your behavior, your words, your attitude. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. May it be blindingly obvious that your life is vastly different from the lives of people who don't know Jesus. That can mean that you still might have a really successful job or a really nice house, but it could mean that you budget to give quite a bit to charity, that you don't treasure your wealth like other people do, people that don't know Jesus. It could mean that you spend your evenings with friends at a restaurant, but it could mean that you have a really different attitude to what you consume. It could mean that you spend a lot of your weekend driving your kids to extracurricular activities, but maybe it means that you don't schedule anything on Sunday mornings so that you can attend a church service.
In a Christian talk on character, my good mate N.T. Wright was talking about virtues and vices, doing good and doing evil. He says, anybody can learn a vice. All you have to do is go into neutral, slide along with the way stuff is going, and before too long, certain habits of life will have you in their grip. Whereas virtue, you have to think about. I don't know if you've ever found that. If you go on autopilot through life, vice or lack of morals creep in. Take prayer, for example. Personally, I need to make a conscious effort to pray. Now, when I pray, I stop thinking so much about myself and I start thinking more about God and others. This one action leads, leads me away from myself, but towards God, towards greater consideration of God's ways through my day. But that requires me to choose to pray, to choose a good action, instead of going on autopilot and deciding I'm too busy to spend even a microsecond in prayer. N.T. Wright uses the example of courage. Courage is what happens when you take a thousand small decisions consciously thought out to put somebody else's safety ahead of your own so that on the thousand and first occasion when somebody has just thrown a hand grenade into the middle of a group of your friends, you will unhesitatingly and instinctively by second nature go and grab it and throw it away or throw yourself on it. I think Paul's invitation here is for us to make the thousand small decisions through our lives. The thousand little decisions that we might make could be as small as making the kids feel welcome at the church morning tea table when they crowd around and get all the good cupcakes. It could be walking across a traffic light intersection at the same pace as someone with mobility issues so that they aren't alone. It could be taking a microsecond from your lunch break to think of people in your world and pray for them. The decision to remain in faith, to stay in the hope that the gospel promises, is from the start of your faith to the end of your life. Following Jesus isn't the promise that your kids are going to get into the best schools and universities. It isn't the guarantee that you'll make lots of money and be successful or even that you'll have great health, although we pray, we receive blessings, we believe for miracles. Following Jesus is the promise that whilst he was the firstborn from death, he isn't going to be the last. Following Jesus is to recognise our part in the scheme of life, not as people in control, but as creatures. Creatures who are made to give glory to their creator made by him and for him. In the last part of verse 23, Paul describes himself as a servant of the gospel. Now, there's a bit of debate about if Paul wrote this letter himself or if he was speaking it and another person was writing it. But regardless, I find this amazing. You don't need to spend too long in the New Testament to realise that Paul's something of a heavyweight. Ben Witherington writes, When we're dealing with Paul, 
we are dealing with a towering and influential figure who put even most of his associates and co-workers in the shade and was prepared to take on and confront so august and apostolic a figure as Peter, Galatians 2. Yet this guy describes himself as a servant or an administrator, a steward. How often do we view ourselves as servants or as stewards? Versus how often do we think that we should be living our best lives, the lives that please us the most, that we're the most important people in our lives, that we're the main characters? We're not. Jesus is the main character. Whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus is the most important being in your life. You and I exist through Jesus and for him. Now, this isn't to say that we're not valuable or important, but it's to say that we're valuable and important because of who our creator is. We are his creatures, his new humanity, who are privileged to be part of his kingdom, to be his servants, just as Jesus himself first came to serve us. We're about to enter a time of communion. There's two tables down here and one at the back. If you're new to communion, this is a time where we as individuals and as the church remember what Jesus has done for us. Before you come forward or to the back to gather the communion elements, I'd encourage you to consider where Jesus fits into your life. Do you acknowledge him as the one who you were created for and through? Does Jesus reign supreme in your life? Have there been things that have distracted you from the reverence and unsurpassable importance of Jesus? As we consider these, let me invite you to gather the communion elements. Mm -hmm. 